Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Acts. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do us a favor. If you have benefited from listening to these sermons, if you found value in listening to this podcast, then it would be awesome if you would consider leaving us a rating and or review. If you'll do that, it will help our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. Like I said, if you find these sermons to be important for you, help somebody else hear them by leaving us a rating or review. Hey, again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I find navigating our culture right now, it's not funny, um, pretty difficult and strange. And I, I think that, you know, we have this misconception that a nation can be a Christian nation, and I, I don't believe in that. Uh, countries are not inherently Christian or non-Christian, but a nation can be filled with Christians and Historically, America has been a nation that is filled with Christians. And, and as you know, when a nation is filled with Christians, it, it changes culture, right? I mean, uh, in, a, in a democratic republic, our politicians are going to be Christians when, when there's a majority of Christians in a country. And our laws are going to be centered around things that are Christian-like and our morality will be will look a lot like like Christian morality when a nation is filled with Christians and I was born into a country where where that was true but it seems like it's becoming less and less true now still a, a high majority of people in this country call themselves Christians but but a, but a much higher percentage of people that, than used to be true really are kind of anti-Christian. And it seems like people who are even Christian in name uh, seem almost anti-Christian. I don't know if you've seen that on social media, but I have people who call themselves Christians, but they seem to hate Christians, which is really kind of a backwards deal to me. And, and so for me, kind of being born into you know, a, a country where where, where it would have been seen as really respectable and, and I, as a pastor, like people would have really thought highly of that and now it's like, who is this guy, you know? And, and there's been this shift and, and it's a really hard shift and I don't like to admit this because, uh, I don't know, it seems like as a pastor or just as a person that, it, that I should fit in culture and know what that looks like but, but, I, but I find it ever more difficult to know how to live out Christianity in, in this culture that, that is less and less Christian-like. And I think that I'm, I'm right to say that, that a lot of us are feeling this tension and a lot of us are missing the boat. And we're finishing the series this morning on church and, and I'm going to be talking to you more as individuals than, as, than I have been in this series where I've really focused on us corporately because Luke in 
one of his final summary passages about church, like in the book of Acts, there's these summary passage and, uh, passages and, and Luke is putting the best foot forward for the church. And, and really what he's showing us is that despite the persecution and the bad decisions and some of the evil that crept its way into the church, despite all of that, the church was able to triumph. And, and here in this last passage, he connects triumph to to the Christians really doing a good job of navigating a culture that I don't think is, is really dissimilar to the culture that we live in today. Really a culture where, where Christians aren't being persecuted. And I know that you can turn on TV and you know some of the guys on TV will tell you that we're being persecuted or that persecution is coming and maybe persecution is coming like people will start to actually be hurt for their faith it might come I hope it doesn't come I'm scared that it will come because I have children but uh, but right now what we're facing persecution is really overstated right can we agree on that I mean maybe somebody's gonna get mad at you because you're a Christian maybe somebody will disagree with you People maybe don't like you just because they know you're a Christian. But persecution, I mean, to call ourselves persecuted here in America is really to, I think, uh, diminish what, what people are facing in other countries that are actually being persecuted. But we live more and more in a culture that is hostile towards what we value and what we believe and to hold to some to some true Christian tenets is now to go against the grain of culture. And this is, this is the culture that the, that the early church was facing in the passage of scripture that we're going to look at. And, there, and there's a reason for it. There's a reason that our culture so well aligns with, with this last summary passage that Luke pens for Theophilus, the guy he's writing to. And that's that what we saw last week, that persecution had arisen terribly against Christians in the first church so bad that the Christians in that first church in Jerusalem, they all, almost all anyway, had to flee out of Jerusalem in order to continue to live as Christians and be Christians. And in the passage we looked at last week, Acts 8, 1 through 4, we saw that the Christian, the first Christian martyr, had been killed and all of a sudden this persecution arises so strongly that people just flee and they travel throughout the known world back to their hometowns. They get out of Dodge and they continue, this is what we talked about last week, they continue to tell people about Jesus. They don't quit the Christian faith, they just flee because of their Christian faith and the gospel continues to spread because they were filled with, with just how incredibly great the gospel story is. So that happened. And then after that, in a part of the story of the church that we're not going to read, something really, really important happens. This guy named Saul, who, who was at the, at the center of this persecution, I mean, he made it his life's mission to end this movement called, called Christianity that he thought was going against the Jewish faith. And as a strong, good Jew, he thought that that proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah was evil and so he was trying to end this Christian movement and he got permission from the religious leaders to go to house to house to arrest Christians so that they would denounce the faith and he could end it but but then but then 
In Acts 9, there's this, this turn of events, this turn of events for the entire world. Uh, by the way, you should read the end of Acts 8, like Acts 8, 5 and on, because it's really, there's just some miraculous things that happen. It's a really interesting part of the Bible. If you're like, oh, the Bible's boring. Well, the end of Acts 8 is not, but we're going to skip it today. And then, and then in Acts 9, 1 through 6, this world-changing event takes place. And this is what we read. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them prisoners as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Paul encounters the resurrected Jesus. Paul had good knowledge that Jesus had died. What Paul didn't believe is that Jesus had got out of the grave. And then Paul had an encounter with Jesus. He's blind for three days. He finishes the journey to Damascus, probably being led by hand uh, with his companions. He gets to Damascus, he doesn't eat for three days, and then God tells this Christian man named Ananias to go and find Paul in the city, gives him the address basically, and says, pray for him. And Ananias is, I mean, he gives the logical response like, uh, God, you know that this guy's evil and he's trying to kill people like me who love you. God says this, this incredible thing. This is my chosen instrument. Talking about Saul who becomes Paul. This is my chosen instrument to, to tell Gentiles, non-Jewish people about me. Uh, Ananias goes, he prays for him. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized, he becomes a Christian. And, and then Paul becomes instantly one of the greatest champions of the Christian faith. Uh, it, it's so immediate and, and, and so like, he's almost just brash about sharing the Christian faith. I mean, just listen to the rundown of the rest of Acts 9. So Paul becomes a Christian, Saul, and, and he gets his name changed. He becomes Paul at some point. But listen to this, Acts 9, 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. That's a contrast, right? Between going house to house and arresting Christians for saying that Jesus is the son of God. At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the son of God. Acts 9, 23, just three verses later. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. This is a turn of events. This is a life-changing decision that Paul has made. Acts 9, 28, after he goes back to Jerusalem, the disciples, the early Christian leaders, are scared because Paul has come. He wants to hang out with them. They're like, no, you, you hate Christians. And then after that, we read this in Acts 9, 28. Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And then in Acts 9, 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Wow, 
I don't know if you're a Christian, but if you are, will you try, did people try to kill you in the first couple you know, weeks or whatever that you were a Christian? I mean, this is a life change. You go from being the one who is persecuting to the one who is persecuted because you become such a strong voice for the Christian faith. Paul's a guy that just seems to be all in on things, quite frankly. I mean, he's not going half-heartedly. Uh, and and. He was all in on ending the Christian movement when he thought that Jesus was a dead false Messiah. But immediately after he had encountered Jesus, he was all in on letting everybody know that Jesus truly was the Messiah. Now, there's there's some real importance in in this, but, uh, but one of the primary things that we're supposed to see here is that in the midst of persecution or whatever we face, God is taking care of his people. What's so interesting in Acts is that we have kind of these, these two big moments of persecution and God takes care of, of his people in two vastly different ways, uh, miraculous ways both times. One time with Paul, he converts the guy to Christianity. The other time he just kills the guy that's persecuting the church. And, 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 and Acts, Luke is saying in the book of Acts, God is saying to us through Luke's words in the book of Acts, God's gonna take care of this Christian movement no matter what, no matter what. And then Luke hits this summary statement and, and this theme continues and it's, it's such an important verse for dealing with culture. Listen to this. You won't see it right away, but listen to it. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Persecution will come again. The church will be persecuted until Jesus comes back. But there are times when that persecution for at least a group of people ceases or it lessens, it goes away. And this is exactly what happens here because the one who was at the heart of the persecution has now been converted to Christianity. And by the way, I didn't tell you this part, but after he starts preaching and almost gets killed for a second time, the disciples, I think in wisdom say, hey, why don't you just go learn some things for a little bit, you know? And they send him off to his hometown and he hangs out there and the persecution It goes away for a bit. And in the Bible, we see this kind of theme that when God, and and I think this is so encouraging if you're going through something hard, when God allows for his people to go through something difficult, it often is followed by a time of peace, a time when we can refill, a time when we can be strengthened, a time when we can be encouraged And oftentimes the hard times come again, but God gives us these breaks. People say this thing, God will never give us more than we can handle. And and that seems true. But one of the ways that he allows for us to handle things is he often relieves us of the burdens that we face for times of refreshing, times when we can be filled up again. And this is exactly what happens in the early church. They face this intense, intense persecution. And then God allows for this time of peace by converting his chosen instrument, Saul, uh, to the faith. 
And what happens here is, is it creates this time in Christian history that, like I said, is not dissimilar to ours. The Christians are no longer being persecuted. They're not fearing for their lives. They're not being beaten up. They're not being arrested. But the culture is still hostile towards them. The Jewish leaders don't like them. The, the, the people think that they're part of a false religion. The Romans think that they teach a morality that is downright strange and weird and maybe to be feared and, and, and maybe, and this is what causes later persecution, maybe a, a morality that doesn't allow for them to worship the Roman emperor, which is true, right? And that's not okay. And so while the persecution dies down, the hostility remains and it creates it really does it creates this this situation that I think we can learn from but Luke puts this passage here this one single verse in order again to remind us that even though there was hostility and that persecution had come and gone the church was still thriving and the church was going to triumph when I look at our, our Christian culture in America today, what I sense, what I feel from you and from others is that we have forgotten what Luke is primarily trying to say. That through it all, the church will triumph. Because we live, like I've said, in a time when it seems like the amount of Christians is decreasing. It seems like the morality of Christians is decreasing. And I mean that like about real Christians. But it also seems like the culture is less and less inclined to believe in a Christian morality. And more and more inclined to dislike, hate, be angry when they see Christian morality. And we've been left feeling, I think we feel like Christianity's dying. It's going away. It's not working. Well, the church exists. But what Luke says has remained true for over 2,000 years. It doesn't matter what the world tries to do to Christians. Christianity will always triumph because the power of God is behind it. Listen to these numbers worldwide and this is just a reminder. I think I've said these things before but we forget this because in our little corner of the world, America, it feels like Christianity is not triumphing. But worldwide it is. From 1960 to 2000, the Global growth of the number of reported evangelical Protestants grew three times the world's population rate. Isn't that incredible? God is still moving and working and he's, he's doing things. In 1900, there were about 8.7 million adherents of Christianity. Now there are 390 million. Obviously, population growth is part of that, but people are becoming Christians, right? I mean, this is, this is still something that is thriving Christianity is reportedly the fastest growing religion in China with an average annual rate of seven percent increase in Christianity and it's not even allowed really in some ways isn't that stunning and God's like I don't care about your persecution I don't care what your government says I'm going to keep working the number of Christians in Mongolia grew from this is amazing just four in 1989 to around 40,000 as of 2008 that's and we just are like oh Christianity's dying and it's because we feel in the U.S. this next stat in the United States 
Christians will decline from more than three quarters of the population in 2010 to two thirds in 2050. That's what some data experts say. That's stunning, right? But But I read this data to you because I want you to remember that what Luke was trying to portray to the early church is still true today. No matter what the world does to us, God will still move his church forward. It's happened for 2,000 years. Trust me, people have tried to end this thing called Christianity. They can't do it. And in fact, where persecution is the strongest, the church seems to grow the fastest. God doesn't need our governments to like us. God doesn't need for our laws to align with Christian values. He's going to triumph. Christianity will move forward. Know this, no matter what you do, no matter what the church in America does, no matter how fickle or fake Christianity seems to be in our churches today, God is going to move Christianity forward. And Luke does this thing in Acts that I love. He ends the entire book on a high note. Even though this same Saul who becomes Paul is, history tells us he's, he's martyred for the Christian faith. He probably dies at the hand of a Roman emperor named uh, Nero who was one of the great persecutors of the Christian faith. Luke doesn't end there. He ends on a high note. Acts 28, go read the end of the story for Luke. He ends on a high note and, and throughout he ends his sections on high notes as if to say it looks bleak but it's not because God is behind this whole thing. They can't end it. They can't stop it. Christianity will triumph. The exegetical commentary on Acts is devastating as they may prove to the disciples who experience them. Talking about persecution. They belong to a larger picture of God's work in history, which ultimately prevails. That's the attitude, I think, that we must have as we navigate the Christian culture in America. It may suck for us that there's less and less Christians, that the laws of the land no longer align with biblical morality, that people seem less and less inclined to like us because we're Christians. It's not fun for us. But it does not negate the fact or lessen the fact or do anything to the fact that God is alive and active and moving his church forward. Don't think that Christianity is dying. Know that Christianity is thriving because Christianity is driven by a king that is much greater than any king on earth. The king of kings, God himself. But in it, in it, we see that these early Christians responded to the hostility in a way that God was able to use quite powerfully. And I think if you're like me, that's what I'm looking for. I want to respond to this changing culture in a way that changes culture for the better. I want to respond to the to the negativity that seems to be arising towards Christianity in a way that allows for Christianity to flourish, that allows for God to use me despite what people might think about our faith, if you're a Christian. 
And in this passage, this one single verse, Luke shows us how the early church responded to a, a hostile culture, the hostile culture in which it lived. And, and, and here's, before I look at it, here's the problem. Here's what I see is, is one of the great problems with the American church. And it starts with individuals. And that is simply this. We aren't responding the way that these people responded. Let me tell you how I think we respond. Number one, see this all the time. We're just angry. <laughs> We have these negative emotions and we respond to our culture with anger. How dare you try to change our laws and how dare you not like us and how dare you not listen to our Bible. And we're just, this, I, I think this is the number one response. People just seem angry and upset and scared and frustrated and, and it's just this negative emotions that, that dictate all else that we do in response to a shifting culture. And that's not what we see from the early church. I'm sure you could have guessed that, this first church. That's not how they respond. But that seems to be how we're responding. And it's wrong. And it's gonna cause, I think, us to, to perpetuate the movement away from a Christian culture and not help the, the culture shift back towards Christianity. And so that's one response. Another response that I see is to try to win the culture war. No matter what it takes, Usually this means politics, right? We're going to do, we're going to, we, we don't care about the, the Christian thing as much as winning the war for culture. And so we will reject what God has said in order to make sure that we, that we can have a culture that we like, that kind of feels the same, that, that, that looks like it's always looked, that, you know, that, that was built when we had a bunch of Christians running around. Number one, we get angry, but number two, out of that, I think that we say, what do we have to do to win the culture war? Do I need to yell at somebody? Do I need to pick at something? Do I need to boycott something? How do I win the culture war? How do I grab on to the sand that feels like it's shifting from underneath me and maintain the ground that I currently have? And then the other thing I see is that we just try to look like culture. That's the other response, right? It's like, well, if culture's shifting, maybe we'll shift our Christianity. Does the Bible really say that? Do we, we, I mean, do we really need to hold on to 2,000 years of what people thought about this verse? Maybe we could just chuck it and, and say that it means something else altogether. There was this uh, emergent church movement that, that's a little bit dated now, but 10 years, 15 years ago, this, this emergent church not emerging emergent it's a key difference I'll explain it later if you ask me but this emergent church movement came and and really it was built on just questioning everything like well uh, let's just ask you know is Jesus really the son of God and, and and a lot of times this emergent church movement would come to the right answers but what seems to have happened in the last 15 years is they've started to throw away every key tenet of Christianity let's question it and let's chuck it in order that people might be drawn to Christianity even though we've erased it pretty much and I know people like people that have just said like they don't say it like this. They say, well, I've come to a new conclusion on the Bible, right? I mean, you know, I'm smarter than the last 2,000 years of theologians. 
They don't say it like that either. That's my words. But that's what they're saying. But, but what's really happening is, well, culture doesn't like it. And in order to have Christianity be more likable by culture, let's just get rid of it. Let's just throw it out. We can get rid of that part. These, these are the responses that I see to a changing culture. A culture that is, I think, hostile more and more every day towards Christianity. But it isn't the response, it isn't the response of this first church. As they experience peace, that's the word that Luke uses as he writes here, which is a word that seems, it's not the the Jewish shalom idea like this whole well-being, it just means the absence of strife. There's no more fighting, there's no more getting beat up, there's no more being arrested. As As they come into that time, the first thing that we see is that they are strengthened. This is a building term, like construction term, like a house, right? They're, they're built up in this time. And man, I think that, that instead of trying to build a culture war, one of the things that we, that we should be, the, the thing we should be focused on is strengthening our churches and our souls and our faith. We think that living in a hostile environment can only result in a weakening of Christianity. But for this first church, it resulted in a strengthening. The persecution was hard on them. But when the persecution ended, even though culture didn't like them very much, it was a time when they could be built up brick by brick. New converts were made. People were were learning to minister. You can see this is a time, I'm sure, when all of a sudden they were growing in their knowledge of what it even meant to be a Christian. Think about Christianity being so new. A hostile environment can be a perfect soil for the church to be strengthened. And there's two things. Ready? Here they are. I'm finally going to get to them. You're wondering, what's the attitude? What does it take? What do we look like in, the Christ- in a hostile culture towards Christianity? What is it like? What did they do? What allowed for them to increase in numbers even though the culture was hostile towards them? And there's two things. And they're so countercultural to modern day American Christianity. It's almost funny that they're in there. The, they did these two things. They walked in the fear of the Lord. And they were comforted by the Holy Spirit. Ben Witherington III says of living in fear of the Lord and being comforted by the Holy Spirit. These are the two characteristics of a faithful church responding to a hostile environment. Fear of the Lord and comforted by the Holy Spirit. Fear of the Lord's a weird one, right? Like because they're already in a culture that they could be scared of. But they're not scared of the hostile culture, isn't that? I just find that so interesting. What they're scared of, what they fear, what they have a healthy respect of is not the changing culture, but God himself. In Luke 12, 4 and 5, this is what Jesus says. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We've lost that 
Throughout the entirety of scripture, there is this concept that we should fear God. This doesn't mean that we run away from God because we know that God is gracious and God is good. But it does mean that we remember what type of being we are, are dealing with here. We are dealing with the creator and sustainer of all who can send you to hell without hesitation, without thought. He could send you to an eternity of destruction. There are people who say, well, if God is a God who would send somebody to hell, then I'm gonna reject him outright. And I've said before and I'll say again, if God is a God who will send people to hell, then you should serve him with all your might. We like to play around with the idea of God. To think, wow, he's just this nice grandfatherly figure that sits in heaven. But this is a God who could strike you dead at any moment. He just chooses not to. That first church, when they lived in a hostile environment, they weren't scared about the culture. They were scared about God. They feared him. And I look at so many of the people in my generation trying to respond to a shifting culture and giving up on the things that God has declared. The response is this, well, we don't really fit anymore, fit in anymore, and so here's what I'll do. I'll reject the things of God. All that is, just put it out there, all that is is fearing culture, what it might do to you, what it might cost you to not fit in. It's fearing culture more than it is fearing God. And you'll answer for that someday. The early church did not throw out their own morality. They did not give in to the ways of culture. They did not bow their knees to false gods because they feared God more than they feared a culture that was hostile to them. Man, if the early church would have got it wrong, if they would have looked more like the modern day American church, they would have been like, well, the Romans, you know... They just like to sleep around with everybody. So let's do that too so we fit in there. And, and the Jews, I mean, they're going to be mad at us if we don't, if we don't take, partake in the sacrificial system. Even though we believe Jesus, you know, he's the ultimate sacrifice who gave his life for us and forgives us for sin forever. But maybe just we'll kill a couple of animals just to keep everybody happy, you know. And, and man, did Jesus really say that we couldn't, you know, bow down to false gods because, eh, you know, we probably got interpreted wrong. The disciples might have got it wrong early on, you know. And so, I mean, that's what we sound like when we fear culture more than God. And these people were able to navigate a hostile culture because they feared God more than they feared culture. And then, and then the other part, though, is, is just like, it, it feels like on the opposite side of that. But we, ha we, we put these up against each other and, and we make them opposites. But they're not opposites. It says not only did they fear the Lord, but they found their comfort through the Holy Spirit, which is God. They feared God, but they found their comfort in God. That's how they navigated a hostile culture. This, this word for... Uh, Comfort also translates encouraged and it refers to this idea of being called alongside someone. That's its most literal translation. And I have two kids now and this is really easy to see. Uh, my daughter wasn't this way early on, but she's, she's made the, the change now. Um, you know this, if you've ever been around a little kid at all, if they get hurt, they want to be near you. 
If they get scared, they want to be near you. When things are difficult, they want to be near you. Hazel, if she gets shy, well, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a weird thing she does. And, but here's what she'll do. She'll, she'll cling to me, like if you're talking to her and she doesn't know you very well, and then she'll start to stick her hand inside my shirt like this. It's like the hug is not close enough because of the fear. Like she needs to be even closer to me and it's kind of like, okay, Hazel, we're in public. My shirt's coming wide open. You know, she's unbuttoning it. It's like, all right, I don't know these people either, Hazel. Um, and... There, there, is, there, is, there is comfort in nearness. And, and this church feared God more than culture, but they didn't take comfort in anything culture had to offer. They took comfort in, in God. Just a couple more things by way of illustration. Uh, the, the Family Fun Center here in town used to have a haunted house outside of it and when I was a youth pastor, some of us, we went together and we decided to do it two by two because it was scarier just to have two of you. Nobody was willing to do it alone. But, uh, you know, we had however many kids came and, and we just went two by two. And, and Brandon Gray and I, this, this uh, kid in our youth group, we went in there and, uh, and, you know, he's, I think he had graduated. So he's maybe 18 years old and I'm 23 or something like that. And and we go in there and we start, you know, acting tough and we're walking in. And this, I shouldn't even admit this. But by the end, we are holding each other like this and running through this, this haunted house together, literally cuddled up next to each other. Nearness, right? Comfort. We need that in our lives. And, and I mean, like Brandon's going to save me from a mass chainsaw man you know like I mean that's not gonna happen but to know the nearness of somebody is to be comforted I, I brought um one of my old baby blankets because we think of of baby blankets when we think of comfort right and a lot of kids uh have a baby blanket and and, and it's pointless comfort you know like I mean what's it gonna do for you but kids find comfort in knowing that their, their blankets are near to them, that, that they can hold this familiar thing that has been with them forever, really, you know. And, and what's so wrong about our church culture today is we're not finding comfort in the right things. There's only, there's only one thing, being that's been with us forever that will never leave us or forsake us and it's God. And what do we find in our comfort in? I mean, first we find it in the things that everybody else is finding it in. Like if I just make some more friends or my family's here for me or, or we're finding it in our political system. If we can get the right man in office, then everything's going to be okay. Or we find it in like, if I can just make enough money and be wealthy, then people will respect me and they can't tell me that I'm wrong for being a Christian. And this early church, they feared God and their blankie was also God. We fear culture and find our comfort in culture. Isn't that strange? Because it's so easy to see, like, it's like, oh, with God, you can't fear him and find your comfort in him. But with culture, it's like, well, yeah, that's shifting and it's scary, but also it's comfortable. 
but you know what allows for it with God? It's grace. I mean, what we believe as Christians is that we, that we were created by this, this infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful being. And then, and this is crazy, he told us what we could and couldn't do and we said, eh, I don't really care what you have to say. We rejected him who could send us to hell. And instead of sending us to hell, he sent his son to earth to die on a cross for us so that we might have the punishment for our sins taken away, forgiven. And then on the third day, that same Jesus rose from the grave conquering death and allowing us to enter into a relationship with that creator, sustainer being. And so we can look at God and say, wow, you're scary. But also hold me because I need you. Because we know how gracious and merciful he is. In C.S. Lewis series, The Chronicles of Narnia, there's this theme. And this, if you don't know the story, the, the God figure in, the, in these books is is Aslan, this lion. And people throughout the stories will ask, is he tame? And the people will say, no, he's not tame, but he's good. And we serve a God that is not tame. He does not fit into our boxes. He can do whatever he wants. He is all powerful. But at the same time, he is good. And he is gracious. And if we're going... If we're going to navigate a hostile culture as Christians, then we must fear the Lord and find our comfort in Him. I'll tell you what's riding on it is the last thing that Luke says, the last thing that we'll look at in this series. And that is that the church continued to increase in numbers. What I'm watching and what breaks my heart is culture has shifted away from Christianity and we've responded in all kinds of wrong ways and so there's less and less people becoming Christians. But for this early church, culture shifted away, there was hostility, they responded correctly and people kept becoming Christians. And my dream and my hope and my prayer and the thing that I care about more than anything, more than anything, is that this country would see revival and by 2015 we would not have a third less Christians in our country but we would have infinitely more. But it's only possible if we start to respond to a hostile culture by fearing God and finding our comfort in Him. I hope you'll do that. Let me pray. Actually, no. I'm going to ask you to pray. This is what we've been doing in this series and it feels appropriate right now. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to have a conversation with God. And I want the conversation to be twofold. God, 
first, please help me to respond to this culture correctly. And then God, help Christianity and Christians, our churches, to respond to this culture correctly. Will you pray just that?